Well, good morning to everybody watching online, and good morning to everybody out here on the lot. I want to hear just like, just an amen from everyone. We're on the lot! Amen. It is fantastic. It has been so long. Little little insider secret. One of the biggest challenges, at least for me this last year, was to do this. Look straight ahead and not move. But now... I can move around a little bit. So, so good to have all of you here. And I love that we're doing church throughout the summer, at least as long as we can keep stretching it until hopefully we get back into the high school. But I love that we're doing it outside because to me, that is the stuff of Jesus, right? Like Jesus did not conduct his ministry in an HVAC controlled environment. He was out on shorelines, he was up on hillsides, he was out in marketplaces. And so it's fantastic that we're kind of rolling in the spirit of Jesus with this. With that said, a building would be nice, all right? So, in light of a building would be nice, uh, this is the week that we do our updates for kind of the financial stuff for the church. We wanted to do that every single month, kind of let you know how things kind of rolled out from the previous month. And so if you remember back to our announcement in May for April, uh, we said our goal every month is to try to hit about $90,000 a month. We're trying to eat up also on top of that, this $4 million difference that we want to get money saved up for. So that's been the goal. Back in April, we had about just shy of $70,000, so sort of lower than our projected stuff for the month. But for the month of May, things flipped around, and the giving for May, building and general fund combined, was $161,000, way higher than everything else, so fantastic. We're just steaming along. We, are, uh, we have some things actually here next week as far as some of the city green lighting stuff that needs to go through and some of the other things. So we're really hopeful by, Scott, would we say by the end of June, we should then know on the paperwork side, all the stuff. He gives a thumbs up on that. Scott's really been running a lot of that for us. So good stuff going on there. So all the way around, real positive things happening with the building. There's your announcement for building stuff. But we're here for Jesus, right? That's what it's about. We're looking at this whole series called The Scandalous God, and it's the Gospel of Luke and showing us that when Jesus came into the world, He defied the vision of religion. He defied the way that everybody thought things were going to be. And he introduces us to something radically different that will change the world. So that's why we're going through the Gospel of Luke. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning. Get ready for things. And as we get ready to do that, just a reminder, we're in Luke 14. So you can go there or you can tap there in the app. And there's also notes and all the other stuff on our app as well that you can follow along with today. But I'm going to go ahead and pray. And then we're going to get right to business. Let's do it together. Jesus I thank you for the fact that you defy standards. I thank you that you are uncomfortable. I thank you that you look religion straight in the face and you challenge it to humility, to compassion, to making sure that a love of people is what is dear to your heart and therefore dear to ours. So I pray that you will help us to know what it means to really live in that kind of reckless, radical love toward other individuals that we will put others before ourselves and that we will seek to be the the servants of all because that is what you model to us even today. And so we look to you to guide and teach, to challenge, to inspire, and to remind us of what life is all about. So Jesus, we look to you to uh, do all the awesome work that you do in your good and perfect name. Amen. 
All right, so Gospel of Luke. There's a lot of things about Luke's Gospel that are different, that he does a little differently than the other dudes that write Gospels. And one of the things is he loves uh, kind of to operate in pairs. And I don't mean like Bartlett pairs. I mean double pairs, duplicates. He loves to talk about like two stories compacted together or two parables pressed together or two characters or individuals or persons or communities, whatever it is. He loves the doubles. And so what we're going to find here is that we've just wrapped up chapter 13. We're moving into chapter 14, but it's going to sound familiar. In fact, in some ways, you're going to be like, did Luke kind of just end up being like that record that's stuck, right? And he's just going in a circle. You're like, he's dealt with this kind of stuff before. Why is he doing it automatically back to back in the next chapter? Well, part of what his heart is, is to make sure like any good teacher, he tells you what he's going to tell you. He tells you it, and then he tells you what he told you. And that's a little bit of the heart here. And so the content and the subject matter, you're going to be like, he, he did. He just did some of this stuff. But it's meant to drive home the point that teaches us that, you know what? Hypocrisy is bad. Compassion is good. And we're meant to do something different in the world. And so what you're going to see is he talks about people that are healed on the Sabbath. He talks about the hypocrisy of religion. And he talks about the promise of a future reward in this big banquet that God throws. So he did that in chapter 12 and 13. He's going to do it again in chapter 14. But what he's seeking to highlight to all of us is that, frankly, the kingdom that God cares about, the kingdom that Jesus is introducing into the world, is altogether different than the kind of kingdom that religion craves. See, religion is going to crave a kingdom that elevates those holders of the religion in sort of a proud kind of way. And that's the toxin that Jesus is dealing with. So he's introducing repeatedly through examples and healings and conversations this other vision that is really the vision that's going to change the world. So back in chapter 13, we saw that he frustrated religion by healing a woman on the Sabbath. Well, now, this morning, as we start chapter 14, we see this doublet pair, and we see where Jesus is healing now a man on the Sabbath. And it highlights the very first thing in your notes. Number one, if you're filling in blanks and taking notes, it's the danger of hypocritical piety. See, piety isn't necessarily bad. When it's proud piety, when it's hypocritical piety, that is a problem. So it starts in chapter 14, verse 1. It says, One Sabbath day, Jesus went to eat dinner at the home of a leader of the Pharisees, and the people were watching him closely. So the scene is sort of like a potluck at a pastor's house after church, and, and, and they, they invite Jesus to come in to do this. And it's interesting because Jesus has been in this space before. right? He's been invited to a Pharisee's house, Every time he's invited, it doesn't go well. And the same is true here. Because the motive is not this this religious leader saying, hey, I want to get to know Jesus more. I want to understand his vibe. I want to see what he's about. I want to see if he makes sense. That's not what's shaken down with this scene. No, there's this critical spirit on the part of religion that wants to catch Jesus in something. So once again, they've invited him into an environment meant basically to try to manipulate things to make him look bad. Which is why it says there, they were watching him closely. The tone in the original language that Luke writes in is this idea of malicious intent. It's like this idea of surveillance where you're just hoping, you're like rubbing your fingers together, like hopefully he does something dumb and we can bust him for it, right? So that's what they're hoping for. And so they want to bait Jesus. 
And you go, well, what's the bait? What are they going to bait him into to sin on the Sabbath? Well, they're going to bait him with a person in need, which sounds terrible of religion, but it's what it's going to do here. It says in verse 2, at this scene, there was a man whose arms and legs were swollen. So this is a bodily edema. This is where fluid is building up in his tissue. But in their culture, in the first century, they would look at a man like that and say, there's only a handful of reasons for why he would have this disease, be sick in this way. Either A, he's had sexual sin in his life and it's created the problem. B, somehow he's just sinful in general and God is cursing him. Or C, he's possessed by a demon. So they're going to see every negative thing as being the thing in this man's life. So here's what it means for then religion in this context. Normally, a good Pharisee having a dinner party would not invite such a person to the meal. That person is contaminating the meal according to their culture. They're bringing an impurity into the environment. They wouldn't have him there except that he's bait. They're using this poor sick man to try to bait Jesus into doing something truly deeply sinister, show compassion. Worst thing you could ever do, right? To lovingly care for one in need. But that's the bait. That's what they put out there. And Jesus takes the bait. Verse 3. Jesus asked the Pharisee and the experts in the religious law, he says, is it permitted in the law to heal people on the Sabbath day or not? Like, what do you say when you read the Bible in the Old Testament? What does it tell you to do? And what's interesting is the question is a bit sticky when Jesus asks it. Because the way they understood this was this idea of necessity. Is it necessary to do an activity on the Sabbath that benefits a person or an animal or a thing or whatever else? And so from that, they would say, well, if it's life-threatening, you can do something. If it's not life-threatening, that person can wait till tomorrow. That problem can wait for another day. That was sort of the vision, right? But for Jesus, the issue is different because he's looking at this and saying, the guy's got a problem. The guy is hurting in some way. I can intervene right now. This is the day of rest according to the law. And I could bring rest to this man's life if he would just, you know, simply come near and I touch him and these guys would be cool with it. We could all rest together. He could rest. It would be awesome. Jesus sees this as necessary. But religion may look at this and be like, well, we're not sure. And so he asks the law keepers, is this act of mercy acceptable, permitted, okay. And it seems that what they do with the question is what we all do when we know we're kind of caught. They just sort of kick their feet, look away, just don't look them in the eye, right? Because then that shows your guilt. So they're just kind of steering away from it. Yet I would say their silence is in some ways their violence because here's the deal. One of two things are true. Either A, they would rather this man suffer on the Sabbath, then he'd be healed on the Sabbath, which is problematic. Or worse, and I think even more dark, they hope that Jesus heals this dude on the Sabbath day of God so they can accuse him of sinning against God on the Sabbath. That is jacked up right there. When you're like, man, we hope he heals this guy and we can bust him. That shows how dark religion can get sometimes in its priorities. So it says in verse four, when Jesus, or rather when they refuse to answer, Jesus touched the sick man and healed him and sent him away. Now this is a reverse a little bit of what we saw back in Luke 13 where he would uh, first heal then touch. Here he touches then heals. See the touch is just this deposit of care and value. 
In that culture, if you were touching an impure, sick, or unclean person, you were, by design of the law, becoming sick yourself. That's kind of the way it sent, like, poison into your own world, so to speak, socially. But for Jesus to do that, says, this man has value and dignity and worth, and I care, and I've come for these types of people. That's who he cares for, and so he touches him. And then with that, he heals him. So he brings tangible kind of restoration to this individual's body and then it says he sent him away which in greek again this language that luke writes in has the best sense of jesus lifted his burden he lifted his burden even though as he does that it creates a social burden for himself where now the religious leaders are going to be like oh now he's dirty again oh he's bad again oh he's sinful again but see what i love about this is jesus practices what he preaches Jesus has said very clearly, you want to be the greatest, be the least. You want to be first, be last. And what he does right here is he makes himself least in that environment. Suddenly he is now the social pariah, but he makes himself least and that sick man is made first. And he's sent away restored, he's sent away with his burden lifted. Then Jesus says in verse five, he turns to them, he says, which of you, doesn't work on the sabbath if your son or your cow falls into a pit don't you rush to get him out and once again they could not answer so the silence isn't just violence the science silence is now deafening here because they know he's right right see here's the thing what they love to do is take the bible and hold it in judgment against other people or judge other people or be indifferent to other people when it suited their cause but if it's their problem it's their kid their cow their whatever they have no problem disrupting their own sense of piety for the sake of their own convenience or reward or just whatever thing is important to them on that given day. So it's not good for others to do it, but it's fine for us to do it if it matters to me. Like, that's the problem. And that's the danger of this hypocritical piety. It's this idea of holding other people around us to standards that we won't hold ourselves to when it's challenging to do that. That's the hypocritical piety. It's proclaiming conviction for rules that you yourself will break if you're going to lose some money or you're going to lose some ease or you're going to lose a thing you want. Then you go, the rules don't apply right now because it's impractical to do that. That's the hypocritical piety. It's the loving of law more than loving the law of love, which for Jesus is the greatest law because then it's just merciless truth instead of the truth of mercy. So, so Jesus knows exactly what he's trying to confront in these religious leaders, and he wants them to embrace this. He wants to see them made whole and healthy as a religion. He doesn't come just to simply call out religion. He wants to see religion become what it's meant to be. And so he's trying to get its attention even at this dinner party. But this isn't the only danger these individuals are facing. There's a second danger. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to teach to the danger, and it's number two in your notes, the danger of seeking self-promotion. Trying to elevate oneself, verse seven. It says, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seat of honor near the head of the table, he gave them this advice. When you are invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. It says, what about someone else comes in who's more distinguished than you and they've been invited to sit in that place. Your host will come and say, give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed, and you will have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, 
take the lowest place at the foot of the table. And when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, you have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. And then he closes it with a doublet from chapter 13, a repeat, verse 11. It says, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in Jewish social life, if you wanted to be a somebody, you needed to sit next to a somebody. And if you sat next to a somebody at the right party, the right festive thing, whatever it was, it was like being connected to a socialite. It's like you having your picture with like a social media like personality that goes viral and suddenly you're famous because they're famous. And in the Jewish culture, that's what you wanted. You wanted to look like you were an up-and-comer sitting next to an up-and-comer, and then hopefully you could flip that. You would invite them to your party eventually, and they sit next to you, and you're just climbing the social ladder. That's the spirit of what Jesus sees in this setting. But he's using this to teach us something about his vision for the world, his idea of what the kingdom's really all about. And so his thing is the heart of the kingdom is not sprinting to be first in everything in life, not sprinting to be ahead, not sprinting to be the top dog, but rather it's sprinting to put others first, not you first. It's when others are first, like when that sick man on the Sabbath was first instead of Jesus being first. That's the scene that Jesus wants to drive home. And he does this because he knows that the most important host that any of us can focus on is not the host that is the head of a company or the host that's the head of a party. It's the host that is the head of heaven. Jesus knows that God himself is the great host. And Jesus knows, because we've already seen it in chapter 13, we're going to see it again in this chapter, Jesus knows there's this one big celebration that's coming. And the host who is God is going to set up the seating order. And when he sets up the seating order, it's not going to be like, how awesome were you in the earthly standards of life? It's going to be, how awesome were you in relationship to the kingdom values that my son communicated in the world? Like, if you were awesome at that, man, you're going to get a great seat. So it's like for those who focus on themselves, their comforts, their earthly ease, and say, that's what's most important to me, and then Jesus is next. Well, that's going to be a problem. But for those who put others first, who put God first, kingdom first, righteousness first man eventually it's it's one of the best seats in the house that you get in fact it's interesting when you look at the reason that jesus has the position that he does why jesus sits in the seat at the right hand of the father it's because of this very thing i turn your attention briefly to philippians chapter 2 says in verse 6 though he and that's jesus was god He didn't think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He took the worst seat at the table. And what's the result? Verse 9, therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor. See, the reason Jesus gets the seat, the reason God elevated him to the highest honor isn't simply, well, Jesus is God. Jesus is his kid. It's because Jesus took the humble position of a slave, therefore God elevated him, right? You don't want to lose that. It's a model for us. Because he chose the lowly state, he was given the highest rank. And it's a reminder to us. It's a reminder to me. If I decide I'm going to live in Meville, then it's going to be eventually a road that leads to my own sense of lowestness or lastness or humbleness in a negative way. But 
If I seek to just focus more on living for kind of himtropolis, if you will, it's his priority, his vision, his goals, his heart, then there's being first, there's being exalted, there's being elevated by God himself. That's the whole idea. And so from this, Jesus seeks to drive this home. And he presses the point by looking at this third thing in your notes, the danger of selective hospitality. What's interesting to me about this chapter, this is just a sidebar because you're here, but, but it's so intimate, right? There's like banter and dialogue at a dinner table. You don't see that very often in the Gospels where there's that kind of intimate connection. And you see that then in verse 12 where it says, then he turned to his host. He says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, and your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back and that will be your only reward. And so what I love about this, just stopping right there, is first of all, that idea of when he turns to his host, I really think he wants this person to get it. Right? I, I, I do. I, I so often think we miss the tone of Jesus. I think we see Jesus is just constantly frothing at the mouth, angry spittle shooting out at the Pharisees, right? He's just, he wants these guys to just fry. Like we don't, you know, we think we don't, he doesn't like them. No, he loves them. He wants them to be different. He doesn't want them to be down the road they are. So I think he's trying to woo this guy. Like, come on, bro. I'm trying to tell you right now. You don't want to do this. You want to do it different. Here's some advice. I want to tell you how to live in such a way that you are modeling what God cares about. And so I just love the heart there. Just get rid of your empty piety. Get rid of your self-aggrandizing righteousness. Let go of your elitism. Let go of your fundamentalism. Do things different. That's his heart. And so from this, Jesus is saying, man, if you really want to do things different, if you want to make a difference, don't just chill with the people that you know, the people that you like, the people that are familiar, the people that are comfortable. That's not bad. That's fine. That's fun. That's a good time. Sometimes you should do that. He says, but what you really want to do is expand the borders of your influence. What you really want to do is think about those people that you may not spend a lot of time with, that you may be uncomfortable with, you may be uncertain of. You want to make those investments there and expand your borders, right? Particularly in relationships where you are going to be more the giver than the receiver, where it may cost you a little bit to be in those relationships. That's kingdom-minded stuff. Verse 13. He says, instead of hanging with the people that you know, the people you dig, and the people that got cash, instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Then, at the resurrection of the righteous, at the end of all things, where the big banquet is, right? God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. So again, we see some doublet from chapter 13 and even chapter 12. Back in chapter 12, Jesus says, don't worry about your cash. Don't worry about money. He says there, give your money to the poor. That's actually what he says. Don't worry. In fact, give it away. That's how crazy he was talking here. But what he's getting at is, you know what, if you just hang out with people that are like you, have the same social economic status as you, have the same kind of value system as you, it's okay. It's fun. It's awesome in a lot of ways, but it's just an exchange. That's just what friends do. They invite you over, you invite them over. It's cyclical. It's totally cool to do that, but not at the cost of true kingdom mindedness which is investing into, befriending, inviting people that are kind of different than you. Maybe they're socially different, morally different, religiously different, doesn't matter, right? Economically. When you make those investments, it's not an exchange, it's a gift. And God rewards the kinds of gifts that we give away with our lives. Because there's an award banquet coming, right? That's what Jesus has been talking about. The one day God has this big party, 
and the party is designed for those who got it that got the idea of the kingdom, that lived the idea of the kingdom. So it's like at the end of your soccer season as a little kid and everybody's getting trophies, well, you get trophies here for this idea of kingdom ownership. And so Jesus begins to speak to this again. And he speaks to it as another danger. It's number four in your notes. The danger of misaligned priorities. Misaligned priorities. And it starts with another dude at the table. So again, there's just like this conversation going on. So there's another dude at the table. And he kind of tags into what Jesus has just said about rewards. Because he knows he's talking about the kingdom emerging into the world. And so hearing this, verse 15, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it'll be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. He's like, this is going to be sweet. It's going to be rad. And we're looking forward to it, Jesus. Thank you for bringing up rewards. We can't wait to get our own. We're getting big trophies because we're Pharisees. That's the way they're kind of envisioning these things, right? But this man's assumption is rooted in the stuff we saw back in chapter 13. So back in chapter 13, a couple of things that we learned. One is that anybody was a descendant of Abraham. We're like, Abe's my great, 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 granddad. And if he is, then we're in. We're just in like Flynn because we're Jewish and he was Jewish and God promised all the Jews that they're going to get this cool kingdom. So we're in just because of our heritage. And that was the first assumption this man here has. But the other reason he has this assumption is because he's thinking we're blessed and we're righteous and the righteous, they're going to be blessed in the kingdom. But the unrighteous, they're going to be banished. And to be clear about who the unrighteous were that were going to be banished from the kingdom that this guy's all excited about, it's the Gentiles, so all non-Jews, they're going to be banished. And all unclean people, all sinful people, they're going to be banished. In fact, first century Jews even thought that anybody that had a handicap was going to be banished, right? Incredibly elitist, these individuals, right? And so for them, it's a kingdom of elitism, of conquest, of superiority, of a dislike of enemies, of a dislike of messy people, and it was just going to be the good, perfect people, what they envisioned themselves to be, right? But just as the kingdom of Jesus is truly upside down and backwards from what religion thought it was going to be, the list of guests in that kingdom is also going to be a bit backwards and upside down from what they thought it was going to be. Verse 16, Jesus replied with this story. It says, a man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations, right? So this is an RSVP scene and you respond back, I'm going to come to your party. That's how this works. So when the banquet was ready, he sent out his servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But then they began to make excuses. They backed out of their RSVP. One said, I have just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. And then another said, well, I got married. You know how that is. I can't come. She said, I can't come. All right. So can't make it. Now you read that and you go, okay, these are just different excuses, different reasons, different whatever senses of priority. But if you draw these down to principles, right? So don't take the particular, but you kind of draw it in and go, well, what do these things sort of represent? They are the three biggest rivals. I mean, in my world, they are the three biggest rivals to truly living a dedicated kingdom life. What are the three rivals? Look closely. I just got married, the rival of family. I just bought a field and I have to inspect it, the rival of occupation. I just bought five pairs of oxen. I want to try them out, the rival of possessions. Family, occupation, and possessions. 
Those are always the things that are the rival to the kingdom. So what Jesus said is, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. We go, well, right, but I got to also seek first my family and then second my job and then third my stuff. But I can seek fourth the kingdom and its righteousness. Or I can seek fifth or sixth because there might be a fourth or fifth already in there. So I got to kick it down the road a little bit, Jesus. Come on, I mean, family's important. Job's important. Stuff's important. And he knows that it's important. He's not saying family's bad, stuff's bad, job's bad. What he's saying is, priorities make sure you have everything firmed up so yes take care of your family do your job well take care of your possessions use them for good things but don't forget in that who jesus is what jesus seeks and how jesus calls us to live so it means don't place family over faith or don't say family time is more important than faith time like we don't want to, it just gets inverted or, or don't make your occupation your idol or your savior or your be all end all right like do your job well do a great job of what you do but don't let it become an idol in your life or even your possessions don't let your money rule you right have your money have fun with your money but also use your money give your money care for others with your money i mean jesus has been making a big point of that that's the stuff of the kingdom because the more we get sucked into family occupation and possessions and we don't give all of that to jesus it's just those are first and jesus is fourth or fifth then we're no different than these reasons that are being listed here in the passage well i'm too busy for this i got that whatever else and jesus is like man you're gonna miss out dude you're gonna miss out because my kingdom and my father and his ambitions for you they matter more they matter more and so the story continues Verse 21, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. And his master was furious. And he said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, which keep in mind in their culture, that was the sinful, that was the untouchables. Those were the unblessed by God. And he's like, those are the ones I want, right? Says after the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. And so the master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges, check out alleys, wherever you can find and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those who I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. Now here's what I dig about this. If you and I planned a party, RSVPs, people said they were coming, then they didn't come. We would just be like, I'm folding up shop. I'm going to get in a fetal position. Nobody likes me. I'm going to go away. I'm just going to drown myself in my two gallons of guac that I made for the party that nobody's going to eat, right? Like that's, that's what we would do. But God is different and he's relentless with his kingdom. So he's like, fine, I put my hand on Abraham. I said Israel was going to be it. They don't want to do it. Whatever. I'll go find somebody else that wants to come with me, kick in the doors of hell and make a difference. I'm looking for people that are hungry. I'm looking for people that desire. I want to see people that want to actually change the world in positive ways. If they don't want to do it, fine. Let's fill this up with some other people that actually are driven to see it happen and succeed. So that's what you see the father doing here. That's what the head of the party is all about. That's the heart of God, right? He's going to get this done no matter what. And so he just opens up the doors wide open and says, all right, world, come on in. I'm going to use anybody who wants to drive forward with kingdom priorities. And so here's the thing, I think, from this little last nugget that Jesus has, right? If we prioritize family or career or our possessions above Jesus' gospel and kingdom, it may be rewarding. Like, I don't want to say it wouldn't be rewarding in your life to have those investments, but what Jesus is saying is, while it might be rewarding in this world, it won't be rewarded. 
in this next world to come. You, you did it, it was fine. All of that has its own built-in reward, but it's not the reward that the Father is passing out. But if we prioritize Jesus and kingdom and gospel in the context of our family and career and possessions, so we're saying, hey, all of that goes under Jesus, all of that stuff I have, I use for Jesus and his purposes, well then, man, Jesus is like, you're going to be double rewarded, actually. It's like a double tap blessing. Because the first thing, what we say as a church all the time, is that life is better with Jesus. So life is better with Jesus when it comes to your family life, your work life, your possession life. Like, it's better with Jesus. But the other part of this, Jesus says, is if you do it that way, I will reward you for submitting all those things to my purposes. So you, you get a high five and a pat on the back and a good job and who knows what else, because he wants to reward a life that is lived for him in the context of all of those things. And so with that, it's like, if you want it all, if you actually want to maximize your life, you want the fullness of what it is that God is offering, you don't have to decide between taking God seriously and taking that stuff seriously. You take that stuff and you put it under God seriously, and he double rewards. In fact, I close with this promise that Jesus makes. It's kind of a conglomeration of Luke 18 and Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or wife or brother or parents or children or property. And by giving up, by the way, it doesn't mean you had to get rid of it. You just relinquished your sense of death grip on it and control over it. You relinquish it to God. Whoever's given it up in that sense, right, for the sake of the kingdom will be repaid many times over. And notice what it says, many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. What he's saying is there's something far more rewarding about taking those priorities of life and submitting him, submitting them to him and to kingdom that will reward you more in this world with those things, but also will reward you in the world to come because you submitted those things to him. Let's go ahead and pray together, everybody. Jesus, I thank you that you challenge us. I thank you that you ask something different of us. And I pray that we have the courage and the faith to do what it is you ask, that we will realize that the stuff of family, the stuff of occupation, the stuff of possession are all opportunities to make much of you, right? To point out to the world how you make all of these things better because life is better with you. So Jesus, continue to show us, to teach us, to challenge us, to push us, to dare us, to be what you want us to be. We thank you and praise you in your name. Amen.